from KUAR in Little Rock, I'm Sarah Kellogg, and this is Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Now completing our 19th year on the air and still the only program on the radio today dedicated to the preservation of comparative generational thought. So let me welcome you to the crossroads of history. Our topic this evening is female sex drive. We have already heard the male perspectives, and now it's the women's turn. My guests today are Dr. Rosalie Otters. As people get older, there seems to be um, a thought that they're not even sexual. They're asexual, and that's simply not the case. Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. My generation, actually, their first sexual experiences were with human beings. And a lot of people are actually being exposed to sexuality on a flat screen nowadays. So they really aren't engaging with a human being. And UALR student Amber Atkinson. We want each other to be happy. We really don't care who your sexual partner is. I really do think we are becoming more open about it. We have to take a short break. We'll be right back, so stay with us. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow. Phil Marriage has hosted every program going back 19 years. He wisely asked me to host this one since it completes the generational discussion on male and female sex drive and will be an all-women voiced program. Both programs, by the way, are posted on the KUAR program page at www.ualr.edu YTT. The men had their say. Now it's time to hear from the women on female sex drive. My guests today are from the older generations, Dr. Rosalie Otters. Dr. Otters is an associate professor in the UA Little Rock School of Social Work and Gerontology. Dr. Otters is specifically interested in aging and change. She writes, produces, and hosts Aging in Arkansas here on KUAR. And speaking from the middle generation from UAMS is Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. She is an associate professor and director of the Couple Center at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and is also the only ASECT certified sex therapist in Arkansas. She's considered an international expert on relationships and sexuality, is the author of two books, including a book on women's sexuality entitled In Search of Aphrodite, Women, Archetypes, and Sex Therapy. Her third book will be coming out this spring entitled The Labyrinth of Love. And from the younger generation, Amber Atkinson. She is pursuing her bachelor's degree in biology at UA Little Rock. She volunteers at the Raptor Rehab of Central Arkansas. She hopes to educate people on the importance of species that are least liked by many groups of people. So welcome, everyone. I'm glad to have you all here. So I guess we'll just get started with our discussion. And Dr. Otters, I'll start with you. Do you believe that sex drive is a biological imperative? Well, I'd sort of like to open up the thought that there could be a broader, more holistic understanding of things, uh, more sexuality in terms of um, sex drive being part of that, but it's not the whole story. So that we're really talking about, um, in some ways, sex drive, but in relationship to sexuality, which is a broader topic, especially when you talk about older adults. Uh, Though I think perhaps, you know, we can hear from other generations, too, that there is not just one understanding of, of, of uh, sexuality in terms of sex drive. So if we're thinking of sexuality, we might be thinking of um, your concept of who you are, your identity, your relationships. And certainly for women, relationships are very central to everything. And, and I think they're very rela- central to understanding of sexuality. And Dr. Wickville, what do you believe? I agree with Dr. Otters that sexuality uh, needs to be considered in a much larger context. I'm very interested in the work of Rosemary Basson, who's a gynecologist out of uh, Canada, and she's done a lot of research on women's motivation for having sex. And a lot of that has to do with an interest in pleasure and connection. And so if we think about sexuality, yes, I do believe that there's a biological imperative that is part of every human being's desire to have sex, but that's not the major, particularly as we age, it's not the major driver. Uh, as we're getting older, a lot of it has to do with that, uh, the, an interest in pleasure and in connection. I guess I have to agree with everyone else. I mean, there is the imperative to have that sex drive to need to produce, but especially with now we have so much going on in the world, it's becoming an issue of should we do we really want to? There's not really a need to be reproducing anymore. So it's there's more to it than just the sex drive. It's becoming a whole lot more, you know, ba- like basing it on relationships and just how connected every uh, the people are in the relationship. There's becoming so much more to it. And do you believe that sex drive has had any influence on the generations regarding when sexual activity starts, when people start having sex, when women start having sex? 
Uh, I think that's changed uh, through time, and especially since the um, pre-pill days and then the so-called sexual revolution, which made it very much easier to have sex and separate it from procreation. I know when I was in college, you You'd be very careful because it has so many implications to have a situation get out of hand and then become pregnant. You and it was not a not a good thing. It wasn't perceived as a uh, happy moment. And I think in many communities, people who were pregnant that way, they were not seen for nine months, and then they sort of appeared on the scene again. But then with changes, especially with the pill, there really were quite you know it really separated sex as procreation from sex as relationship and uh, whatever else there might be. So that has changed in time. But I think that we still wonder about those things. And I know, especially in the 60s and 70s, but even now, the Beatles are always so important in many ways to how uh, certainly the older generation understands things um, the older generation thinking of the baby boomers more than anything because there's a generate there are generations after the baby boomers, but the baby boomers that cohort who are now 55 to 73, they really grew up in the midst of this sexual, these sexual changes and these cultural changes, uh, so that the, if anyone was born between 1946 and 1964, they are part of that. And I think of um, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club band, you know, will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 64? It's very psychosocial. You know, it's like, can, you know, will I be, will I still be human? Will I be, will anyone care about me? And it deals with sexuality rather than just sex drive. You know, can I have a relationship? Can somebody care about me? As I get older, especially in our society, we're so ageist that as people get older, there seems to be um, a thought that they're not even sexual, they're asexual, and that's simply not the case. Do you think that growing up or having your generation going through the sexual revolution, do you think that changed when people your generation started having sex? When did that normally happen? Was it high school? Was it older? Well, it might have been earlier, but there were a lot of repercussions when it was earlier. You couldn't continue high school. So I think that if you went to college, and you have to understand, far fewer women went to college at that at that time than do today. That might have been the time, too. But uh, otherwise, a lot of people got married right out of high school. And sure, they might have had sex, but then there were you know, consequences to that. You were supposed to be responsible, and uh, you were supposed to get married often, and that didn't always last. It could have been rather difficult in many ways. And Dr. Wakefield, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I'm a baby boomer, so I came through in that group of people that was the post the pill. And it was an interesting gap of time because there was a period of time when there was a lot of freedom of, of expression and exploration, and then HIV-AIDS came along. Mm. So we, it, was a, it was a very interesting time of sort of an, an opening and then a closing of this freedom, mm-hmm. and which was difficult for a lot of people at that time to really consider that we had to think about other things now other than just getting pregnant. Again, in previous generations, people were getting married younger. They were getting married, you know, if we look back a couple hundred years ago, people were getting married at the age of 15, 16 often. So they weren't having to deal with a sex drive that was going on that wasn't being unfulfilled. They were being coupled. And so that that was uh, more of a natural progression. The advent of birth control and our capacity uh, with condoms and such to have un- uh, protected sex, protected sex, uh, has changed a lot of the sense of freedom. I still think that the idea of being discriminating about who it is that we're having sex with, who, who it is that we're sharing our bodies with, is important. And it's, it's not so much a moral issue nowadays as people really are considering, number one, they're considering their health because there's so many sexually transmitted diseases. And also, 
a lot of the younger kids that I know that are in their 20s, sort of the 20 to 30 age bracket, are really trying to build their careers. So they're not getting involved in as much as many relationships. There's a little bit of hooking up that happens, but there's really a reduction in the amount of sexuality as people are really pushing extremely hard to build something before they get to be 30. And I, I think that stress has a lot of impact on how often kids are having sex. Sexuality has often been framed as something that is for the young and beautiful, so the idea of uh, the Beatles and will you yeah. still need me, will you still feed me when I'm 64, those of us that are getting a little closer to that age, we, just, we still want to be considered sexual beings. And uh, this is an area of, of growing interest. I know that a, a lot of the, when I talk to gynecologists, I'm always asking them, how much education are you giving to your postmenopausal women about late life sexuality? and their possibilities both in terms of health and involvement because women postmenopausally are still very interested in sex. So it's not just for the young and beautiful. And uh, Ms. Atkinson, what do you think? Are millennials and younger Generation Z, are they too concerned on their career to have sex? Or when, when do you think it's around when this particular generation started having sex? Just from my experiences, I want to say we my generation usually starts around late high school, but then we're like told we have to go to college, we have to build that career. And you do see a decline in it. It does become completely stressed. I mean, college itself is stressful, but then we're expected to get a job right out of college. We're expected to build on that job and get the career out of that. I really, I think she's completely correct on sexuality is being highly impacted by this just large amount of stress that we're being put under. Because back in maybe the older generation or even further back, you could come out of high school and have that career and you could raise a family on that. And it's not like that anymore. You hardly see a single person who can support themselves anymore. So we do see a decline in how sexual uh, we are being in college, but because of the stress. But even with that stress, we're still reminded of the fact that, okay, we're going to need help living. We don't want to live with our parents, so let's try to find that partner in college. But it's so hard with the stress of everything going on, and we're so afraid of disappointing the ones who have told us that we need to get that career. So it's just a whole mess of things that can that end up affecting our sexuality and our sex drives and just everything about it. Yeah, you mentioned kind of and and figuring out who you would want to settle with. Yeah. Do you believe that women think about more of that that kind of thing of like who will support me, who is a good match for me? Do you think that there's a lot of thought that goes into who women have sex with maybe more than men or kind of, and this is for all of you, kind of do you think that there's a, a component or how much do women think about who they want to have sex with? When it comes to just having sex with somebody, I would say it depends on who you ask. Some people are taught to give as much thought as possible into it before you go having sex with somebody. And then there's the others who maybe experienced it earlier, learned what is the truth behind sex. They know how to do everything correct like how to be as careful as possible. And so they still kind of go out and do it with the next maybe person they date. So it really is just dependent on who you ask. And when it comes to settling down, I feel like my generation has kind of learned to almost jump into it. Well, I think she's she's saying you're, you're a millennial. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. And um, my daughter, who is on the cusp of being not a millennial, her birthday's today, Halloween, <laughs> said, it's really hard to be an adult. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I said, yes, it really is hard to be an adult. <laughs> and so when you have sexuality here as the driver and you don't know quite what's in it, it's confusing. And there are, in some ways, so many opportunities or things. You're, you ought to be able to do this. You ought to be able to do that. And I know there was some study that said women have so many um, expressions of sex drive in a day, and men do, and you know, and these kinds of studies are often very, very shallow, and they might be very small studies. The studies often are not that well done. And then if you compare yourself to somebody else, it just gets more and more confusing, I think, that more than, than anything else. When, you th- when I see different cohort, this cohort of those who are in their early 20s and into late 30s, there are a lot of things expected of you, mm-hmm. and in certainly in terms of 
not just sex and sexuality, but also just in terms of who, who are you going to be? And it's not okay just to get married. You're supposed to do have your own career. And you're, mm -hmm. you're supposed to. You're supposed to. Yep. And so it's all these have-tos, I think, that makes it, makes it a big burden, really. One thing that I've seen with older adults and post, you know, beyond um, even baby boomers, because I've worked as a chaplain a number of years ago in a continuing care retirement community, is that a lot of these things, they don't care. <laughs> they just don't care. And in terms of sexuality, for some of them, it's still important to have orgasm if they had a partner, but they don't always have partners, and there are a whole lot more women than there are men. But also, there's, you know, just to be caressed, to be touched, to be able to be told a story that where you're important. These are other aspects of sexuality in terms of your identity, of who you are, and they're often forgotten because Society really does believe often that uh, older adults are just, they just don't have any sex or it's your dirty old somebody or other. If you really want to have a sexual revolution, the next revolution, you've got to help people who are over 40. And I say 40, and that gets really scary, but older adults are perceived by the government in terms of the workforce as being in their 40s, and AARP makes them 50. And, you know, and then we think of baby boomers, and then, you know, we've got this debt, this, it's like being on Mars from about 40 or 50 on to 100. It's an uncharted land, and there's a lot to learn from this uncharted land. First of all, we don't really educate young people or anyone about sexuality. I do so much sex education when people come in to see me, just about how the female body works, what normal sexuality is, and we'll probably talk more about this later, but Amber and I were talking about it earlier, that so many young people nowadays are actually getting their sex education online, and much of it is unrealistic or just sort of you know dramatic and outrageous. And so they come into human sexuality. My, my generation, actually, their first sexual experiences were with human beings. Beings. And a lot of people are actually being exposed to sexuality on a flat screen nowadays. So they really aren't engaging with a human being. And the whole process of sexual negotiation, of eye, even eye contact, is difficult for a lot of young people nowadays. They're so accustomed to looking at their screens. And eye contact is actually quite stimulating. So for to be able to actually look into somebody's eyes and actually have a conversation about not just what we're going to do in terms of acts, but how do I want to be invited? How do I want, what kind of language are we going to use? What kind of cues are we going to develop so that we can transition from one stage to the next stage? Do we have a set script where we have to progress from A, B, C, D, E, or can we cr be creative? Can we actually pay attention to what our body's like? rather than some script that's been handed to us. Is it okay to stop in the middle? For instance, some people, uh, you know, they're, they track the number of times they might have intercourse per week, and they'll come in and they'll say, well, we, we, our sex drive is not what, what it should be. We're only having sex once a week or twice a week. Every couple has to define what kind of a rhythm and frequency and what kinds of activities and, and pleasuring techniques they're going to be doing with each other. It's a very unique thing, and we can't be just handed a one-size-fits-all script, which includes all across the lifespan. And touch is very, very important. Sometimes when I have couples come in where their sexuality has kind of fallen off the table and they've maybe not had any kind of sexual engagement for two, three, five, seven years, the other thing that has completely stopped in their lives is touching, is affection, is holding, is hugging. Uh, is just walking by and putting a hand on the shoulder. Because there's also a lot of confusion with the idea that if I'm affectionate with you, you might misread it as an invitation for sex. So there's there's not enough conversation about that continuum of, of affection and sex and the importance of both of those, how they're different, how we move from one to the other. Uh, and I think it's a, a tragedy when I meet a couple that is no longer touching each, each other in any way, shape, or form, because one or both of them has uh, traveled over to some sort of an isolated island of sexual loneliness. And Dr. Wakefield, I'm just going to throw the next question back. Just we're going to start with you, and then we'll anyone wants to jump in. So who do you think has been more honest about sex drive through the generations, men or women? I think men have, because women historically have been taught not to be sexual. 
essentially we've been socialized to not be sexual beings. And it's always really interesting to me. I do work with people occasionally who have been virgins until they've gotten married, and usually it's for religious reasons. And what's interesting to me is there's this concept that you can kind of clamp down on your sexuality and not pay any attention to it, not develop it, not develop a sexual identity as a sexual being, and then suddenly a wedding ring goes on and you can flip the switch and now you're going to be a sexual being. Well, it doesn't quite work that way. First of all, because there's a lot of education that needs to occur about how sex works, and usually these folks don't get a lot of education. Uh, But also, you know, part of having a sense of desire or wanting to be involved with a, with a partner, has to do with really having an identity as a sexual being. And so sexual identity has, has, it has something to do with partner choice, but it also has to do with, you know, how I like to express myself. So I, in my book, In Search of Aphrodite, I talk, I developed something called the sexual essence wheels. And it talks about different dimensions and expressions that a woman can inhabit in terms of her style of sexuality and who she really the kinds of uh, what I call archetypal energies that she wants to express as a sexual being. A lot of women are sexual nurturers, so they're really caretakers. There's a lot of taking care of my partner and being who my partner wants me to be, which is really a recipe for loss of desire because unless you actually discover who you are as a sexual being and what you really are wanting in terms of touch, in terms of pleasure, in terms of play, in terms of just the way that you want to express yourself, you're not really going to ever develop your own personal sense. Uh, You'll always be a sexual object rather than a sexual subject. Dr. Otters, do you have any thoughts? Who do you think is more honest about sex drive in your generation, men or women? Well, in some ways men are, but in some ways that's not true because um, I think men misread women, you know, historically, especially in, you know, sort of a few generations ago for late baby boomers or something. But for women, there are so many consequences that I don't think men really understand. Like I know Dr. Richard said that in the 50s or 60s or whatever it was that, you know, when a woman said no, she meant yes. And he said said it in a bigger context than it came across. But I think that there goes back to Freud in some ways. What Freud once wrote, what do women want? It was a question. He had no idea what women wanted. Uh, And I think that that, you know, you might say that there's um, two ships in the night, men and women going, you know, past one another and not really understanding the other. So in in a narrow sense, I think that men might be more honest about the sex drive. And in a broader sense of what it means, I don't think they really know. I think they're just completely really confused about it in terms of where women are. And women have a lot of information, but they don't always have the power, and historically so. And there are a lot of consequences if you say too much about what you want, at least historically. Even now, I think there's just a lot of confusion about things. The more opportunities you have, the more confusion you can have also. You can feel like you have to be all things to all people. And the reality is, no matter who we are, we have a certain amount of time here and um, it's not unlimited. Our lifespan will only go so long and so far. And I think that we weren't really given that instruction. At one point, we thought we could do everything, and now we find out maybe we can't. So you have to pick and choose, and I think that's difficult. What are your thoughts, Ms. Atkinson? At least with my generation, I I definitely think it's men, because you see that Guys are always kind of like doing their little handshakes and congratulating each other. It's like, oh, who did you sleep with last night? Or how many have you uh, slept with? And with women, you just, you don't talk about it. Because of there's so many risks, you get asked so many questions. Did you use protection? What kinds of protection? Uh, do you know which ones are the more effective ways? I saw, I've seen a really good analogy when it comes to consequences. It was a man can sleep with 100 women in a year and he'll, he can have 100 children. A woman can sleep with 100 men in a year and she's going to have that one like pregnancy. So our ver- men versus women, our lives are affected a little bit more than uh, the men are. So we get asked so many more questions than men t- typically do. So I do agree that there is a lot of confusion behind everything. We were mentioning before the show, it really just... it. Depends on who was raised more educated. The more educated you are, uh, more open you'll 
healthy to talking about it and how confident you are in saying that sort of thing. But if you, the ones who grew up being taught against that sexual revolution, you're going to be taught to be shamed by that sort of thing. So there is a lot of confusion, but just from my perspective, it's, it's definitely men who are more honest. And so then, and you talk about kind of being at women being asked a lot of questions. So kind of what should change? Should women be kind of a little more free to do it than what? Should men be asked the same questions? Kind of what do you think should change to kind of get that equilibrium of a balance when you're coming with honesty with sex drive? I think women should just be asked less questions. Um, we need to be educated more. I mean, education is just a huge thing. Uh, we're learning a lot from the internet now- nowadays. Our parents aren't always open to talking about that sort of thing. So we're learning from the internet. We just, I think there needs to be less questions asked. And if we know the consequences, then we know it. Sex is part of our lives. I mean, if our friend comes up asking us, you know, all these different questions, it's part of our lives. It's not really their business. It's not going to affect them. If it does, then are they truly their your friend? I mean, so I, I really think either they need to not be asking so many questions unless they are an expert in the topic or ask men uh, just the same amount of questions because they are just as responsible as women are. Dr. Otters mentioned kind of the ideas of consent and and so when he said when when she said no she really means yes Mm -hmm. and kind of how has has consent to sexual activity always been vastly important for each generation or has there just kind of been a greater awareness in the recent years of just how not okay and how consent sometimes really isn't a factor when it comes to how men interact like recently very instances of men interacting with women how consent's not really clearly with the me too movement with all of these things that are happening recently when it comes to like awareness of consent and what is and isn't okay and how what were considered maybe norms aren't okay but they were just accepted so kind of with that was consent always as important or do you just think it's kind of been brought to greater attention due to, I don't know, how the change in time. The Me Too movement is important, but then we see at the top of the political story, it doesn't matter. So I think it just adds to the confusion of what, what does matter. What is meaningful? What, you know, what can you do? And it has to do with power. Mm. There's power behind this, and there's power or a lack of power when you talk about wi- with women. Historically, there was a lack of power, but even today, it's not clear that there's power because it's a very muddled story. And so what, we're, what I'm hearing is that for, even from us, it's just not, it's not clear. You know, we can say that people don't have morally, they can do things that maybe once they couldn't do or they wouldn't cross. In some ways, that perhaps is true, but we're also still looking for something that has meaning, and we're not always clear about it. And, and you know, the places we've looked for for meaning, the traditional places, they have sort of let us down. A lot of the church story has sort of let us down, and a lot of other things have sort of let us down. And so we're sort of a a bit of a drift, I think. And um, you can hear that in different cohorts, but I think you especially hear it with millennials and those uh, Generation Z, that, you know, what do we believe and where, where do we go? Because meaning is still important, and sexuality deals with intimacy, meaning of who you are, whether you're straight or gay or whoever that might be, because that's the other thing we're not really covering. And that is, we're, just, we're sort of in a muddle right now, and I don't know how we're going to get out of the muddle, but it's, you know, one level of muddle sort of hits another level. You know, so whether, you know, what's going on in the larger world also hits us in a personal level. And Dr. Rapefield, same kind of question is, has consent always been important when it comes to generational relationships or has it just been brought more prominence as of late? I think it's been brought into more prominence as of late. And yes, it's a confusing conversation, but we're at least we're having the conversation. Mm -hmm. It has everything to do with power, and it has to do with voice, and it has to do with how women are socialized to be primarily accommodating and compliant and nice, and it's very difficult for women to set limits. It's it's difficult for them to set limits in environments where setting a limit might cost them in some way. It's difficult for them to set limits when they're not supposed to. It's particularly difficult for them to set limits with people they care about. 
And so if you're dating and you you want to keep the guy and there's a lot of pressure put on you and you've been raised to be compliant, uh, even submissive, where in some religious cultures you're taught to be submissive to men, then all of a sudden you've got a boyfriend or a husband who is wanting something and you need to comply. And a lot of times I don't think that people think about that in terms of, of young women developing a voice. But having a voice, knowing what you want, uh, being able to say no thank you, or to, to really firmly say not at this time or not with you or not ever is an important thing. And, and that's something that has to be raised. It has to be in, in the personality development of a female. Uh, likewise with, with men, because we do have you know certain instances of predatory females and, and men who are feeling vulnerable, but it has everything to do with power. And power is such a subtle thing in terms of even just somebody that might be able to open a door for you into something that you want to do or close a door for you for something that you want to do. Power is very, very important. And there are still many, many situations where people feel uh, trapped, cornered, uh, where they need to be compliant in order to get what they need and want to get because speaking out is going to cost them too much. I'm glad to hear that they do agree that like, consent is becoming much more of an issue that is talked about and is becoming stressed with like the Me Too movement. But I have also noticed that there are still those people out there who don't completely agree. There's a lot of criticism that goes around the Me Too movement. It's like, okay, are they just saying that? Was it just maybe some sexual harassment or was it thing? Was it not getting the consent? Like how she said that it, you end up do feeling like you're cornered. If something like that happens to you, what are you going to do? Are you willing to speak out or are you afraid of getting that criticism? It, it, it goes a 50-50 path and it can really tear you apart in this situation, especially like it, like they were saying, it, it's about power. Say it per, it's the person in power that end up hurting you. Are you really going to try to fight that? Is it worth it? You could lose everything you have. So, And Dr. Otter, actually mentioned a thing we haven't really discussed, LGBTQ issues when it comes to with sexuality and sex um, so far in this conversation yet. So I'll, I'll bring that in. It seems as though the acceptance of LGBTQ people has increasing over generations where, you know, there is the right to marry, but there's also the right to be potentially fired if you get married the next day in some states. And so though I do think there is an increase in LGBTQ acceptance and there's a general sex positivity that comes with that, do you think that we as a people and in the on a global basis, do you think we're becoming more sex positive and more acceptance with how anyone expresses sexuality? Well, maybe it's good to at least talk about it, to give it a line. Uh, I think it's confusing for many people, and it, it leaves, it gets into a lot of political things. There's no way, there's no way you can avoid the political here, yeah. uh, and, and so many things that we're talking about, and that's where it ends up being in a muddle of, you know, what do you do, and, and when you have, you know, the, the traditional outlets of religion or people leadership where you would trust these people what are you know even in political circumstances a lot of this stuff has been eroded and so where we're going is a, sort of a question here i feel sometimes we're on a uh, ship that, that, that where's the captain you know it's not clear so um i think it's a time that we've got to come whether it's sexuality or um, whatever, we've got to come to more of an understanding of where we, um, like Dr. Wakefield was saying, where we are personally, you know, um, and rather than worrying about what everyone else is doing here, what, what seems to make the most sense. And um, that's not easy to do. But, you know, talking with others can be helpful, but you can also get into another muddle of just you know, looking at that one group. Any other, anyone else want to jump in? I have a 25-year-old son, and what I'm aware of in his generation, and perhaps you notice this, mm -hmm. is that they really, they, they're not concerned about all this stuff. These questions of who's straight, who's gay, 
mm-hmm. what, who's your sexual partner. They're just mm-hmm. not that interested and not that concerned in terms of judging or making a decision about you. So I, I think what's, what's going to happen is that we're going to age out. The groups that are particularly concerned about it are going to be gone, and the next generation is just going to allow people to love who they love. Mm-hmm. I do think that in an environment where, where everything has to be negotiated, what is lacking in the individuals who are trying to negotiate these new kinds of relationships is actual relationship skills of being able to know who I am, voice who I am, listen to who you are, if you're even self-defined, if you even know who you are, and actually have a conversation where we can look at what we want to create together. So we're we're really not often, you know, the couples that come in and see me, I, in, they're in so much trouble. And usually they're stuck in power struggles, just not knowing what else to do. I try to normalize this by saying no one teaches us how to do relationship. We just don't have any training, particularly in an environment where so much has to be negotiated. And when you take the the hierarchy off of relationship, and that's the era that we're living in, where we no longer have the men in charge telling us what to do. Now we're in an era where where we've got to talk about things, and just about everything has to be worked out. So it takes a lot of effort and a lot of communication, and we really need more help in general in learning how to do that in relationships. Like uh, Dr. Wakefield was saying, we just we want each other to be happy. And this goes back to where we talking about stress affecting our sex drive. We just want to be happy. And so we really don't care who your sexual partner is. I mean, there's always going to be those few who were raised by the ones who did care, who are going to carry on that thought. But I really do think in general, we are becoming more open about it, more positive about it. Find that person you love, be happy, have whatever sort of family you want with them. That is really becoming our central thought. And we and they mentioned being aged out. Well, I think we're already to the point where we are. We have it goes back to power. We have the ones in power who who care about everything else going on about them. They've got their life settled. They've got their careers there. Now they're worried about everybody else and that's affecting how we, my generation is cuz we're not old enough to be in that power seat yet. So we we do feel not really underappreciated, but we don't feel like we're able to get our word out. While everybody up there in those power seats are worried about what they think, they're not ready to listen to us because they kind of push aside, oh, they're young, they don't know yet. You do have the vote. <laughs> yeah, that, that's about all we have at, the, at this age is voting. But we can't get ourselves up into those power seats yet to get an even the chance of even a bigger word in there. But the vote is important, and it there is. are more millennials than baby boomers. And so they keep on saying that there's going, the worm will turn, things will change. Mm-hmm. And I think um, there is a thought that things, this kind of stuff will age out, but the consequences are pretty big mm-hmm. until <laughs> this yeah, happens. Until then. Yeah. I, I don't know. So we can start talking about sex drive, but it seems that we've gone then in some ways to talk about sexuality, which really gets into who people are and how, what does it mean to be human mm-hmm. even, and how can we be human in a group? They had something on bats today, vampire bats, and how they um, they help one another. <laughs> you know, if they don't get enough blood, they'll, they'll go back to their whatever, the bat cave or whatever, and they'll share the blood they have. They were, it's a relationship story. <laughs> it's a good story for Halloween. Good story for Halloween. <laughs> well, if bats can do it, you know, and, um, you know, you see other examples of, of animals sharing. And we need to figure Which out how to share, too. going to be your field. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yep. I want to talk a little bit about Rosemary Besson's research because, so we're coming out of the, the studies of Masters and Johnson, which talks about this sort of stair-stepped, ladder of sexuality, uh, which Helen Singer Kaplan, who was a a researcher after Masters and Johnson, she actually put the area of desire in front of arousal and orgasm. And it's a stair-stepped model. And what Rosemary Besson began to talk to women about was a circular model that began with, uh, and I do think that initially at the, at the start of relationship, 
many times women do have a very strong sex drive at that point in time. And and then as we move into longer term relationship, we have to make that transition. There's something called limerence, which was a term that was coined by Dorothy Tenov, which talks about a period of time at the beginning of the relationship where there's an enormous dopamine download, and we're essentially drunk on love. And that's during the period of time when sexuality is very strong between two people, usually lasts somewhere between six months and two years, sometimes as long as three. And during that period of time, the sexuality just seems so easy. And then as we move into a longer relationship and we start to take on responsibilities and tasks and all of those kinds of things, just life begins to impinge on the sense of um, just time for being, time for remaining in bed. You've got stuff to do. You've got to get up. You've got to get going. And you add kids to the mix and it becomes even more difficult. And then sexuality has to become more intentional because I think at that point in time, people are tired, people are stressed. And it's actually one of the most important senses of, uh, of glue that can hold a relationship together. But Rosemary Besson in The Female Sex Drive really talked about receptivity and willingness as an entry point. And so, you know, for women, and this is true of both heterosexual and uh, lesbian relationships, gay relationships, there has to be, you have to like the person. You have to want to engage with them in general because you like them. And then there's not necessarily this, this roiling, overt sense of desire, but there's a, a remembrance of good memories of being with them sexually in the past, memories of pleasure, me- memories of connection. And so you're willing, you're receptive to entering into, and then s- instead of leading with desire, you usually lead with a receptivity or willingness, and then you move into arousal. And then after you feel aroused, you might say, gee, I'm really glad I'm here. This feels great. Now you're feeling desire after arousal instead of before arousal. And then you may move into orgasm uh, after that. But the desire for many women actually occurs during the sexual response cycle rather than preceding it. But does this go together with women like stories, women like uh, romance, chick flick? I think there's a story component, but I really do think there's a sensation. Well, there should be a sensation that connects with the story, but the the story itself. So the story of the relationship, I think, has to be a good story. Yeah, and and what I was thinking, the story of even when you see some of these chick flicks on TV, they're for women, they're obviously, and it's a romantic story, and how does that enter in? The romantic stories in the chick flicks, I actually think, are very dangerous for women. Because they're always ending at the wedding or at the you yes, know at the do. culmination, yes, yes, they and do. they don't talk about what happens after that point, and that's what we really need to talk about in mm-hmm. terms of, of women's sexuality, in terms of women relationship. Because in a, you know they're talking about that that the longing, the barriers, and now we have the final culmination. We're finally getting it together, and we're unified, and we're either you know falling into bed, and everything is perfectly orchestrated and just works out beautifully. Something to the that effect. And it sets up women for incredibly unrealistic expectations in terms of what real relationship is going to be about. In the book that I have coming out in the spring, I'm going to be talking about the path of love, which starts with enchantment and always moves into the second stage, which is disenchantment. And the disenchantment stage is where we begin to you have kind of the rest of the cast comes out from behind the curtain and we begin to meet aspects of our partner that we didn't quite know two years ago. Uh, and, uh, you know, life circumstances happen and we see dimensions of them that we never expected to, to encounter. And that's the point in time when we really have to uh, see beyond our projections and our romantic idealism and begin to actually create a relationship. Yeah, Ms. Atkinson, you were very much nodding yes. your head with the unrealistic uh, <laughs> things, that, you know, the ways women maybe see relationships, you know, sex through relationships yeah. or the unattainable. These. The stories that they're talking about are severely dangerous when it comes to relationships because with the generations who grew up watching a whole lot of these movies, we are we set our expectations this high. Oh, we expect flowers maybe like once a week or something. We expect these love letters. We expect him to come eat lunch with us when we're at work. That's not going to (laughs) happen. Life happens. That's these stories aren't going to happen. And it, it basically sets our relationship up relationships up for failure because of these high expectations and this goes back to even the sexual education with on the internet you know first getting experience with 
porn, it's it's going to set you up for failure. I mean, you're not, it's never going to be reach that expectation. I'm glad you mentioned accessibility and kind of uh, Mm -hmm. with pretty accessible porn found on the internet. So kind of how has social media dating apps, whether it be Tinder or Bumble or, you know, Mm -hmm. pick your dating website, the accessibility of finding porn fairly easily, you know, on the internet, how has that impacted female sex drive? Like I said, it sets us up for failure it, since that's our first experience. Usually it's first experience for men um, more often because, like I said, like we've been talking about, women are shamed for it. They expect that much from us, and when they don't get it, oh, okay, what's the big deal? So when we see a whole lot of this on the Internet being more accessible, it's just, it's just keeping that ball rolling relationships are going to keep failing. We're never going to reach those expectations. So are we going to find that fulfillment in the relationship that we really, really want? Well, if, if we completely take the moral issue off of watching pornography, it has not been helpful for the sexuality of young people, particularly young men who are actually experiencing a great deal of erectile dysfunction at a very young age when it would have been considered almost impossible. But it has a lot to do with them actually setting up their sexual templates and their neurological tracks uh, around climax to certain images and reaching climax in particular ways that are different than having sex with a human female. Or with a robot. Or with a robot. There are actually, there's a movement right now to go cold turkey off porns to actually rehabilitate your capacity to have an erection and have just regular human sex. And I don't think that most of the young men who were, you know, chronically using pornography at a young age would have anticipated that that would be a consequence. So there's, there's, the, there's the script problem of their expectations, uh, what women want, what women are actually like, and then there's actually the physiological problems that come from it. So it's too many directions, too many choices, and some of them are not very helpful because I don't see chick flicks going away either. You know, and I and so you've got the women with the chick flicks, mm-hmm. you've got the men with the porn, and it, you know, multi-billion-dollar whatevers, and so that's a hard thing to go up against. And I think it's it's fine to have those romantic idealizations as long as there's a context, mm-hmm. uh, or even those sexual idealizations. If as long as you know that, for instance, in pornography, those people are actors. That's not actually how human sexuality works. There's very little education Mm -hmm. about what real relationships are like or how to navigate Mm -hmm. them or what real sexuality is like. And we do a terrible job of sex sex education for our kids today. You could argue that it's fairly easy more than before maybe to have sex with when you come with like especially like with dating apps. You can arrange a hookup in a matter of minutes through Tinder or through apps. And so do you think the fact that sex can be very easily attained, is that harming sex drive? I don't really know the answer to that. What I do know is that it's harming relationships because people are, you know, it's it's a very superficial thing. If you don't like the, the look of the person on the profile, if you don't like the profile, you can swipe left, swipe, swipe right, and, you know, you, you can just get rid of them. And it it doesn't really give you an opportunity to sit in front of a human being and see the sparkle in their eye and the funny little way they smile, the things that are particularly charming and unique about human beings. And it also gives people a false sense that there's an endless number of possibilities out there. If I don't like you or you do something that displeases me, I'll just go on to the next one. So there's there's no time limit. There's no time limit. No time limit. I'm never going to – and aging will never happen. You know, I'll, I'll find a way. Because it, it comes back to, you know, aging is, you study gerontology, it's aging from birth to death. If you are 20 and you're a gymnast, you're old. You know, it really just sort of depends. And if you're 40 and you're a ba- ba- uh, baseball star, you're, you're in the twilight of your career, as Peyton Manning found out. So, you know, it's not enough to have, we have to th- rethink aging. We have to rethink what it means because we have more life, uh, more years of life, and yet I don't know if we feel, often when I talk to people about what it means to get older, even students in my classes, they're very negative about it. And yet when you get to these ages of 60, 70, 80, often they're very positive. 
ages. It really depends. It depends certainly on your health. It depends upon your income and other things. But many people are doing much better than other people outside or who are younger really feel they're doing. So we've got to rethink our whole understanding of who we are and what our society is about. So we're in a muddle, and maybe we'll get out of the muddle. Yeah, and, and the sex drive is a piece of that. We can think it's the whole piece, but it's not. One of the things that I'm aware of is that people that I've worked with over the years, some of the best sex is being had in people's 50s because the children, the children have, a lot of time have left the home, so you know we're, we're, we're alone again. Right. Uh, and also uh, women, I think in their 50s, particularly if they're uh, postmenopausal and they're getting some good uh, gynecological health care, they're not worried about getting pregnant. A lot of times we're not so much worried about our cellulite at that point in time or the little bit of, of belly fat mm-hmm. that we have. Mm-hmm. Men are slowing down. And there's actually a lot of research with with this sort of decline of testosterone. Mm -hmm. They're becoming much more sensual. They're slowing down. And so there's there's an interesting uh, kind of a cross between the women's sort of kick into gear, become more interested in um, more relaxed about sexuality. Men are slowing down. They're becoming more sensual. And I think it's a wonderful time for people in their 50s, sexuality in people's 50s. And if they can maintain that into their 60s and 70s, we can be sexual, you know, all the way into our 90s. Uh, And certainly in different ways than when we were frisky and uh, in our 20s and 30s and could get into any sexual position and not hurt our backs, (laughs) so to speak. But, you know, so we we re-script our sexuality across the lifespan. I think we have time for one more question. Of course, if we want to talk to other topics, that's kind of a final, final question. We can do that. But I'm curious, what for each generation, what do women think about men's sex drive? I know at least for my generation, we think they're just, they want to go all the time. Let's go. Come on. Let's go. <laughs> with, it's back to the stress, with the stress that is put onto us. I mean, we don't, I, I know for women, at least we don't want to match up to that. We can't really. And sometimes it's the same. It could be vice versa. Uh, the men may be under so much stress that they can't keep up, especially when it comes to growing up, like middle school, high school. It's definitely the guys want to want to go all the time just because that's how their raging hormones work. <laughs> and it's back to the kind of shaming. The girls will be the same way. I mean, girls will have the raging hormones. We'll, we'll want to go do it, too. But then we aren't taught properly about doing it. So, I mean, honestly... Like I said, we think the men in our generation are wanting to go all the time, but I mean, it's really both of them are about the same. It's either stress-induced or it's um, we're both raging and ready to go or, I mean, we're just all not educated properly. So I, I do think, you know, if we look at the testosterone levels of men and women, younger men typically feel a greater need for sexual discharge when they're younger. But I will say that In the couples that I've worked with over the years, about one in five of the couples that are coming into work with me have uh, a woman with a higher sex drive than the man. And this is something that we don't often talk about. It's a source of tremendous shame for men. They certainly don't talk to their friends about it. And when women are talking with their girlfriends about it and, you know, one of them might be complaining, oh, he just won't leave me alone. She may be longing to be pounced on, and she's, you know, she's just wondering what that experience is like. So uh, sexuality does change across uh, the lifetime, and I really do think that as people, I, I think that the 50s is an ideal time for sexuality for both people because the testosterone has kind of slowed down in men, and women are feeling a lot freer. They're feeling more relaxed about their bodies. And if the relationship is good, my husband once said something really lovely to me. He said, I love your body because you're in it. And I think that's a a beautiful thing to say to somebody as they get a little bit older. Uh, And we do worry about our appearances and how appealing we are. And it's nice to know that someone wants to be with us because they love us uh, rather than just because we have a beautiful body. Yeah. Those are my thoughts. I try to. Yeah, and I think um, we need to think of those people who are even older than 50 or even 60, 70, 80, 90. Then you see uh, a paucity of, uh, of men around for 
you know, there are many, many women who are either um, widowed or divorced or whatever, but they're single for, for whatever reason. And women are different than men when it comes to relationships. They, um, they sort of group together. You look at um, restaurants and you can see a whole bunch of women together, you know, if they're a bit older. They find other ways of dealing with the sexuality, and it, the sexuality can be with touching, kissing, other kinds of things. It can be you know, the same sex, just, you know, as, as a um, nothing that seems overtly sexual, but it's relational. Also, I know in the time that I spent in a nursing facility, uh, women have memories, even if they don't have the exact, you know, they don't have the ability to do something right now. And one woman I remember, she was in her 80s or 90s, she discreetly told the story, but the story was somehow that she and her husband came back from the, and it was raining, and they, they uh, somehow ended up on the floor in the foyer, and they had sex, but it wasn't, she didn't exactly say it that way, but you know that's what happened. And then there was a woman who was about 100, or maybe she was over 100, she died at 105, and she recounted a story, this, she was born in 1893, this was a while ago. Anyway, she told the story of pre-World War One, where she had a beau, a boyfriend, and he was brought home to her. Um, he was going to have dinner with her family, and her father put up all kinds of roadblocks and everything. And she was just giggling, and she was telling the story. But it was very sexual. So they, memories are also important. There are just a whole lot of other levels of what it means to be a sexual person, you know, both now and in the past, and what you remember and what you are now, you know. And being able to be with others, I think for men it's difficult because as they do have less uh, sexual drive as they get older, it sometimes can be shameful to think that you have to, you know, you might not always have an orgasm or you may have to think about other ways of dealing with your sexuality. Is it enough just to cuddle or is it enough just to kiss? Uh, but there are, we really, when we talk about needing to educate people, we need to educate people at every level, and including older adults. I do think as we have more baby boomers coming up through the ranks, there will be more discussions about what it means when you're older, and you're over 70 even, what that means, yeah. I agree. The baby boomers are going to change this whole context. And they are now, even now, yeah. when you talk to baby boomers. I think Dr. Wakefield was brought up the point that in about the 30s and 40s, men's, she's seen more couples where the women have that higher sex drive. And I had listened to what the men had said in their conversation on all this, and it's about having to provide for that family. I mean, even in today, you see more women become more, becoming more independent, wanting to take care of ourselves, but men are still being raised to say, hey, you have to take care of whatever lovely woman you find, your kids that you're going to have. So I think that is... That maybe, I don't know if it really is directly directly related to it, that men are, ha are still being taught that they have to provide for that family. If that's what's maybe decreasing their sex drive in about the 30s and 40s, along with that lowering in testosterone. Stress is a tremendous inhibitor of sex drive for both men and women. Uh, one of the things that I... I usually do when I'm talking to men about their sexuality, and I'm, I guess I'd like to close with this idea, is that sex has many layers of meaning. There's the sense of physical discharge. There's the longing for union. There's, but there's a, there are dimensions of it that really don't have anything to do with sex drive from a biological sense per se. A lot of it has to do with validation, a lot of it has to do with, um, even even for men, it's like, do you still want me? Do you still need mm -hmm. me? That's right. And, That's sure. you know, do, can I just get some touch? So for a man to actually say, I just want to be held, it's not yeah. something that most men will ever say. But sometimes they just want that skin-to-skin -skin mm -hmm. contact. Mm -hmm. And so the sex is a way to get the skin-to-skin -skin contact when they would actually be perfectly happy just to be held. But they're not really socialized. To, to ask for that and to want that or to say, I, I just, I need to know that, that you love me, that you want me, and this is a way that you can show me. They're not socialized to say those things, but some of the motivation behind the pressure to be sexual for men, I believe, has a lot more to do with their emotional needs. 
And Viagra, the need to have Viagra, rather than just saying that I, I just want to be touched. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's an opportunity as people get older, too, and men get older especially, to be able to say, there are lots of ways to do the story, and it's okay. It doesn't have to be any particular ending here. All right. Well, thank you all so much for talking with me and having a conversation. I think it was super interesting and, and fun to delve into some of these topics. So thank you all so much. You're welcome. Aren't we fun? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. This has been super fun, a blast. So I hope you've enjoyed this generational discussion on female sex drive. If you did not hear the male sex drive program that aired last month, you can find it and this, the women version, posted on the KUAR program page at www.ualr.edu. I do want to thank my guests for their participation in today's discussion. Dr. Rosalie Otters. Dr. Otters is an associate professor in the UA Little Rock School of Social Work and Gerontology. Dr. Otters is specifically interested in aging and change. She writes, produces, and hosts Aging in Arkansas here on KUAR. From UAMS is Dr. Chelsea Wakefield. She is an associate professor and director of the Couple Center at the University of Arkansas for Medical Sciences and is also the only ASECT certified sex therapist in Arkansas, which stands for the American Association of Sexuality, Educators, Counselors, and Therapists. She is considered an international expert on relationships and sexuality, is the author of two books, including a book on women's sexuality entitled In Search of Aphrodite, Women, Archetypes, and Sex Therapy. Her third book will be coming out this spring entitled The Labyrinth of Love. And Amber Atkinson, pursuing her bachelor's degree in biology at UA Little Rock. She hopes to educate people on the importance of species that are least liked by many groups of people. She hopes to educate people on the importance of species that are least liked by many groups of people. Yesterday, Today, and Tomorrow is produced for KUAR in partnership with the University of Arkansas Little Rock and UAMS. You can find us online at www.ualr.edu YTT. This and many of our past programs are available there, and you can send your comments to ytt at kuar.org. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next month.